Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations, provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anne Double and I'm a TMC member. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dominic Baker, Obstetrics and Gynaecology Registrar in the southeast of Scotland Deanery. Welcome, Dr. Baker, and thank you very much for your time. Today we're going to talk about obstetric medicine and the acute medical unit. We all know that pregnant women can present to an acute hospital service at any time during their pregnancy or the postpartum period, which can be up to 12 months post-delivery. Some acute medical problems may need to be managed differently in pregnancy and require specialist input and a multidisciplinary approach to management. So today we'll discuss the most common acute medical presentations in pregnancy that we need to be aware of, the initial assessment and management of these patients. So thank you once again for joining me today, Dr. Baker. To start with, um, I was hoping you can tell us how common are acute medical presentations in pregnancy and which are the most prevalent clinical problems you encounter in your practice and we all need to be aware of. Definitely. Thanks very much, Anders. So I think um, obviously the vast majority of our workload within obstetrics tends to be our obstetric emergencies, but we do see a fair chunk of acute medical problems. As to uh, how common they are, it very much depends on what it is that we're looking at. Um, most of our obstetric patients are young and healthy with few comorbidities, um, but we do know that about 4% of pregnant women have asthma, um, and about 10 to 20 of these will present to the emergency department with an asthma attack at some point during their pregnancy. Another large chunk of our work in obstetrics is um, diabetes. So 5% of pregnant women will have some form of diabetes, the vast majority being gestational, but we do have type one and type two diabetics. And so we do see diabetic ketoacidosis in the pregnant patient. This tends to be more common in the second and third trimesters. And then I think one of the other things that we spend a lot of time investigating but perhaps isn't as common is pulmonary emboli in pregnancy. So we see a lot of pregnant women with shortness of breath and chest pain, but actually it's an uncommon finding. So about one in a thousand pregnancies are complicated by um, venous thromboembolism. This is however about four to five times higher than in a non-pregnant age match woman. And is um, the most common direct cause of death um, for pregnant women. So an important cause to think of. Thank you very much for that overview. So I guess we'll discuss some of these presentations in more detail a bit later. But before we start that, um, I was hoping you can tell us a bit about the changes um, to physiology and also, you know, clinical observations and the changes that we need to be aware of and any specific considerations for the early warning scores in, in pregnant patients. Yeah. So this is um, really important, actually, and the... Um, Scottish Patient Safety Programme um, have released a pregnancy-specific early warning score, um, also called a, a MUSE score. And any pregnant woman should have her observations charted on a, on a MUSE chart. Um, and they can be accessed via the links that are on this podcast. So, for example, um, heart rate in a pregnant person increases by about 10 to 20 beats per minute. Most of this in, is in the third trimester, but the physiological changes of pregnancy begin as soon as a woman becomes pregnant. Other cardiovascular changes that we see are that um, a pregnant person's cardiac output will increase. 
by about 50%. And this is mainly due to their reduced vascular resistance and the increase in their blood volume. We see a physiological slight drop in blood pressure in the second trimester and our targets for hypertension and um, blood pressure control become much tighter in a pregnant person than a non-pregnant person. So for example, a blood pressure above 140 over 90 is classed as hypertension in pregnancy. And the 2019 NICE guideline would suggest we start treatment once a pregnant person gets to this level of hypertension and they will score for this blood pressure on a MUSE chart. Whereas a non-pregnant MUSE chart this a blood pressure of 149 you wouldn't score you anything. From a respiratory point of view, saturations and respiratory rate should never change during pregnancy. And if they have, it can be a sign of underlying pathology. The pregnant person's minute ventilation increases by up to about 40%, mainly due to the increase in tidal volume, which is driven by their higher progesterone levels. They get a splinting of their diaphragm um, due to the gravid uterus which reduces their functional residual capacity, but their inspiratory capacity is increased. So vital capacity remains the same. And importantly, especially with asthma, um, their peak flow and their FEV1 should remain unchanged as well. Okay, so uh, quite important differences there. Um, and what about then clinical assessment and the initial investigations? Um, any particularities in uh, you know, blood tests, results, the way we review them, and also radiological investigation. Um, common question probably, you know the answer, but worth discussing. You know, yep. six rays, is it safe in pregnancy? What about during a CTPA, for example? Yeah. So from a blood test point of view, most hospitals will have um, pregnancy specific um, reference ranges that you can use. Um, dependent on the lab. Um, but to take a look at some examples, um, for instance, urea and creatinine levels, we expect urea to fall during pregnancy and levels of 3.94 are the, are the upper limit of normal and um, a creatinine of 90 or over, if you don't have any previous values to compare it to, is an acute kidney during pregnancy or a rise of uh, 15 from all women's um, baseline um, is an AKI in pregnancy as well, because their creatinine should fall, fall because of the um, increased plasma volume during pregnancy. Anemia is, is common during pregnancy, um, and we'd expect a pregnant person's hemoglobin to be 105 and over in the second trimester, and 110 and over in the first and third trimesters. ALP from your liver function test is obviously going to be higher as well because this is produced by the placenta. And ALT we would expect to be lower and um, the upper limit of normal is around 30 to 40 depending on your reference ranges. An arterial blood gas in the pregnant patient um, shows a physiological compensated respiratory alkalosis because their ventilation has gone up by 40%, but oxygen consumption only rises by 20 to 30% leading to um, hyperventilation and a reduced CO2. On an ECG, you might see a left axis deviation. It should still be within the realms of normal, and this is due to the gravid uterus effect on the heart. There might be nonspecific signs such as inverted T waves, small Q waves in Lee 3, 
and non-specific ST depression and T-wave inversion in the inferior and lateral leads and atrial and ventricular ectopics are common too. From a chest x-ray point of view, it's a very low dose of radiation, safe for both mum and baby, so you can reassure patients from that point of view. You might notice there's an increased cardiothoracic ratio and vascular markings tend to be more increased as well. In terms of where we manage these patients, so if there's a pregnant patient coming in with a suspected acute medical problem, should they be managed in the acute medical unit in the first instance, or the maternity assessment unit? Does it depend at which stage in their pregnancy they are, or does it mainly depend on the local trust policies? So I think you're right. It very much depends on the hospital, and there will be subtle differences between trusts and hospitals as to where these patients are cared for. There is, however, national guidelines that any pregnant patient who's either being admitted or seen in the emergency department and then discharged should be discussed with the on-call obstetric team. So that should happen no matter where you're working. As a general rule, obstetrics does can tend to care for pregnant patients over 12 weeks. Pregnant patients under 12 weeks who don't have a gynecological problem most likely would be cared for on under medicine with obstetric input in a multidisciplinary team manner. So do you expect to be called and to, to see these patients who'd come, for example, to the AMU from the first few kind of hours and, and to their admission? Yes, we very much um, want to be called about them. It, even if we don't have much to add and it's just a case of making sure they've got their folic acid, we know that outcomes are better when we work as an MDT. And do you follow up these patients or again, depend on the, on the problem? Yeah, I think it very much depends on the problem. Sometimes, for example, um, an acute presentation um, can have an impact on the rest of their pregnancy. So they might need to have consultant follow-up the rest of their pregnancy. Say someone with a pneumonia needs an admission at nine weeks, but they might need to have further consultant follow-up in their second and third trimesters. Following that kind of summary introduction, I thought maybe it would be useful to go a bit more into detail key aspects of those common clinical presentations um, you mentioned at the beginning and just discuss them in turn. So can we start with chest pain in pregnancy? What are the common differentials? Uh, how do we assess these patients? Um, and are there clinical diagnosis? I think you already alluded to some of them that are more relevant in pregnancy. And it's something that we, we see a lot of. Probably one of the most common things that causes chest pain in pregnancy would be gastroesophageal reflux tends to be worse later in pregnancy as the increased pressure from the gravid uterus affects the stomach. But also we know that the progesterone in the maternal system relaxes the esophageal sphincter so they're more likely to suffer with heartburn and reflux. Pneumonia isn't any more common in a pregnant person but it's still important to rule out. Are affected by the same pathogens but a slightly higher chance of getting an atypical pneumonia due to varicella or influenza for example. P, I think, is one that everybody worries about. Like we've already said, it happens about one in a thousand pregnancies. Um, and pregnancy itself is a risk factor for VTE, but it tends to still present with the same symptoms as outside pregnancy. So sudden onset, pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath. And it should be considered as well in any early pregnancy patient who's collapsed, along with an ectopic, obviously. Myocardial infarction is we're going to talk a bit more detail on later but it's something that's increasing as uh, maternal age and obesity levels increase as well. Dissection is rare so occurs in 0.8 per 100,000 maternities but it accounts for 14% of cardiac maternal deaths and its um, incidence is rising. It's associated with systolic hypertension 
and these patients would need a CT scan for definitive diagnosis as we know that chest x-ray, ECG and ultrasound and bloods can be normal in these patients. And although there is a dose of radiation associated with the CT scan, the life of the mother needs to take priority. And we did say PE is less common, but you also mentioned that it's something that we all want to exclude. And just thinking of that initial assessment, do you ever recommend D-dimers to exclude PE or do you ever do them or is that a no-no? So different medical societies have different opinions on this. The take from the RCOG is that D-dimer isn't validated and shouldn't be used in pregnancy. We know pregnancy itself causes D-dimer to increase and also subsets of pregnant populations will have an even further increased D-dimer. So for example, patients with preeclampsia, twins, those that have had a postpartum hemorrhage or a cesarean section, their D-dimer will um, rise further. European cardiology societies say it can be used as a rule out if it's negative, but the American thoracic society also say not to use it. Obviously, D-dimer is used with a pretest probability score, like a Wells score, which also haven't been validated for use in pregnancy. So as a general rule, no, we wouldn't use a D-dimer. And what about um, a CTPA versus a VQ scan? So in general, we tend to use um, a Q scan, so the perfusion part only of a VQ scan. And this is because it's about a fifth of the radiation dose to the mum and specifically to the maternal breast tissue, because a CTPA carries an increased risk of breast cancer for the mum, and it's thought to increase her lifetime risk of breast cancer by about 10%. CTPA is obviously more accessible out of hours and has a lower radiation dose for the fetus. Whereas when we're doing a Q scan, there is an additional childhood cancer risk for the fetus, but this is very small at about a one in 10,000 additional risk. So on the whole, if a chest x-ray is normal, we've discussed those risks and benefits for the mum most people tend to go for a q-scan if it's if someone's acutely unwell out of hours then a ctpa is is more accessible but we do we tend to discuss the pros and cons with with the mother and she's involved in the decision making and management of a pulmonary embolus in pregnancy what do you normally use for anticoagulation and is there evidence for the novel anticoagulants so anticoagulate them with low molecular weight heparin probably most commonly something like deltaparin they can use a once a day or twice a day regime and it's based on their booking weight and it's not been shown to increase the risk of having a severe postpartum hemorrhage or affecting their long-term bone density from pregnancy in women who weigh less than 50 kilos or more than 90 kilos the rcg does recommend monitoring anti-10a levels also in patients with renal disease or who are having a recurrent clot, it would be important to monitor this, but platelets don't need monitoring in the long term. So we'd continue that anticoagulation for the rest of their pregnancy and for at least six weeks afterwards, because postpartum is one of the highest times of developing a VTE and they need to complete three months total at least. The rest of their pregnancy would be managed as a consultant-led clinic. Most places will have a combined obstetric hematology clinic who would see them for the rest of their pregnancy. We also let our anaesthetic colleagues know these patients are on deltaparin because it can affect what analgesia they can have in labour and if they can have a spinal anaesthetic as well. Around the time of delivery, some people who are higher risk might need to be switched to IV or fractionated heparin um, as we can manipulate that more easily. Postnatally, they can either continue on their deltaparin or we can switch them to warfarin. That's safe to use in breastfeeding. And that's done from about day five postnatally and they should have follow-up with that haematology and obstetric team postnatally. Regarding the NOACs, 
the RCG advises that their evidence is scarce um, and it's likely that they do cross the placenta, so they're not being used in pregnancy at the moment. Thank you. And acute coronary syndrome, again, said differential that should be considered for chest pain, but uncommon, um, will of course require a multidisciplinary approach to management. Any specific recommendations for the initial management of these patients, um, especially when we consider pain relief and antiplatelet therapy? So acute coronary syndrome is, has a higher incidence in pregnant patients than the non-pregnant patients. And like I said, it's, it's increasing. Cardiac disease as a whole is the biggest cause of UK maternal mortality. So it's really important to consider. Additional pregnancy-specific risk factors you might need to think of are preeclampsia is a risk factor for acute coronary syndrome, a higher parity, and pregnancy with twins or pregnancy-specific hypertension. Non-fatal cases occur in 0.7 per 100,000 maternities. It's rare, but this is thought to be an underestimate. Investigation-wise, angiogram, cardiac MRI, and bubble echo are all safe to use in, in pregnancy. And from a treatment point of view, PCI can be done. There appears to be a preference to use bare metal stents as there's lack of safety data for drug-eluting stents. Thrombolysis can be used, so TPA doesn't cross the placenta, but there's a significant maternal hemorrhage risk of about 8%. Aspirin is safe to use, and actually we put quite a few pregnant patients on it ourselves for preeclampsia prevention, but you can use the 150 to 300 milligram acute treatment dose, but we wouldn't advise continuing that in the long term. Clopidogrel uh, can be used as well in pregnancy, but keep it to the shortest duration possible. And for antihypertensives, our first line would be labetalol and uh, nifedipine would normally be our second line, but this should be avoided after acute coronary syndrome because it increases maternal mortality. Similarly, nitrates can be used, but statins should be avoided in a pregnant person. And this is because it's been shown to cause skeletal malformations when it's been used in rats. ACE inhibitors aren't used during pregnancy, but can be started in the, in the postnatal period. Ideally, after a pregnant person's had an acute coronary syndrome, we try and delay their delivery for about two to three weeks, if possible, because there's an increased maternal mortality during this time. And for pain relief, we avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in pregnancy, but otherwise our analgesia ladder would consist of paracetamol, dihydrocodone and morphine. Thank you very much. That's a very good overview of um, you know, pharmacology and pregnancy as well and medications. And palpitations can be a physiological finding in pregnancy. Are they common in pregnant patients? And what are the commonest um, differential diagnosis we need to consider in any red flags? Yeah, so I'd say this is something that, again, we see quite a lot. Of, and um, the vast, vast majority of the time, it will be pregnancy-related physiological symptoms. And that's definitely our top differential diagnosis. We also see them in our anxious patients, but there can be some systemic causes as well, such as anemia, which is very common in pregnancy, toxicosis, for example, sepsis, pulmonary embolism, and hypoglycemia. Again, similar causes to the non-patient, pregnant patient. Less common causes can include um, postural tachycardia syndrome and theochromocytoma, which is rare, but we'd see it in our patients with hypertension, headache, sweating, and anxiety as well. Cardiac causes to consider would include things like a cardiomyopathy, any uh, congenital heart disease or valve disease, and these include some of the red flags that we need to look for. Also, if the patient is finding that palpitations are waking her from sleep or while she's at work, that can increase the likelihood of this being cardiac in origin. 
anything that's sudden onset or offset or associated with syncope. Any palpitations that are fast and regular or associated with dizziness after their onset. If you can hear a murmur on auscultation, which you can with most pregnant women, recent advice would suggest if there's palpitations and a murmur, you should consider an echo with these patients. Baseline investigations that we do would include a full blood count to look for anemia, thyroid function to look for thyrotoxicosis, and an ECG and a 24-hour ECG as well. With regards to treatment for um, arrhythmias, most um, treatments that you'd use outside pregnancy, you can still use within pregnancy. So for SVT, vagal manoeuvres or adenosine will terminate nine out of 10 SVTs in pregnancy. Um, you could still use metoprolol and um, DC cardioversion um, if there's hemodynamic compromises safe to use for the mum and baby in pregnancy. Um, catheter ablation, however, is not recommended during pregnancy. Similarly for AF and flutter, you can use flaconide and beta blockers as prophylaxis. And it's really important that these patients get anticoagulated. As we said, the VT risk is much higher in pregnancy. Um, for VT, sotol and flaconide are still safe to use. And again, cardioversion can be formed in pregnancy. It's rare to see bradyarrhythmias, but these patients can be paced if they're symptomatic. And for anticoagulation, they go again, the low molecular heparin. Yeah. So shortness of breath. We just, you discussed a bit at the beginning in terms of um, asthma and exacerbations of asthma being common in pregnancy. What are our differential diagnosis and what should we consider in a pregnant patient coming in with shortness of breath? So as with a lot of other things in pregnancy, this could just be physiological and related, related to their pregnant state. So physiological shortness of breath in pregnancy tends to be, again, worse than the third trimester. And patients tend to notice it when they're at rest. So when um, they're more aware of their breathing. Other things to consider um, that we haven't perhaps touched on already, cardiomyopathy is an option. Um, this is most common in our postnatal patients. Um, they tend to be older mums, so over 40, and it's associated with preeclampsia and um, patients who have a higher parity. It can occur when they're approaching term, but also up to five months postpartum as well. Other risk factors include um, ethnic minority groups, uh, obesity, and it tends to present with a shortness of breath, tachycardia, edema, and sometimes an SVT. They'll report orthopnea, and we'd see a raised respiratory rate. And these patients need an urgent echo and um, anticoagulation. Asthma, as we said at the start, is probably one of the common things that we see. And so it's really important that this is treated as the same as you would in a, in a non-pregnant patient. Like a lot of women are worried that the medication is going to harm their baby and you can reassure them that it's safe to use in pregnancy. So one third of pregnant patients, their asthma will get better. One third of pregnant patients, their asthma will get worse when they're pregnant and one third it will stay about the same. And only very severe or brittle asthma can affect fetal growth. Otherwise, most patients have an uncomplicated pregnancy. The multidisciplinary team Management of asthma is really important because anyone having an acute severe asthma attack should also have continuous fetal monitoring on. So working out the best place for these um, patients to be looked after can be difficult sometimes between um, HDU or labor ward HDU. Um, any of these patients who've had long-term steroids with screen for gestational diabetes and they need IV hydrocortisone replacement once they're in labor. 
and we should try and encourage them to breastfeed because that will help reduce asthma in their, in their children as well. Topical at the moment, something to think about with shortness of breath would be COVID. Pregnant women aren't at a higher risk of catching COVID, but they're at high risk of needing ITU admission. Currently, the thinking is that this might lead them to have an increased chance of having an, an iatrogenic preterm birth. Red flags to think about would be, is it sudden onset? So could it be a PE? Is it pleuritic? And is there associated chest pain? And like we've said earlier, tachypnea isn't normal in a pregnant person and should be taken seriously. Thank you very much. We had a good overview of these acute medical problems in pregnancy. Just wondering if we could touch a bit on obstetric emergencies. We did say at the beginning that's the things you, you manage, but is there anything we should know about them and any of these could mimic or present any of the symptoms mentioned above? Yeah, that's really important. Um, I think probably one of the great impersonators that we have within obstetrics is the preeclampsia spectrum of um, diseases. So preeclampsia can present differently in, in different patients. In some patients, it can cause upper abdominal pain, which can be referred into the chest and, and felt as chest pain. And it can also cause pulmonary edema due to the endothelial damage and increased vascular resistance that we see in preeclampsia. And I think that's, this is another reason why it's really important to use a, a maternity early warning school, because this will help you put the pieces together if she's presenting with shortness of breath of chest pain, but also is hypertensive with proteinuria and preeclampsia does become one of our differentials as well. A less common uh, pregnancy-specific emergency that we might see is an amniotic fluid embolus. So these mainly occur during labour or within 30 minutes of delivery, so they're probably less likely to be on AMU during this time, but it's been known to happen. There's a quite a wide-ranging incidence of this, and current estimates are between 1 in 8,000 to 1 in 80,000 pregnancies, and it's currently being surveyed by the UK Obstetrics Surveillance System. Um, which is a surveillance um, protocol designed to um, look into rare conditions in pregnancy. Because there's also a wide range of treatments that are currently used for amniotic fluid embolus. Um, but the mortality is somewhere between 15 to 30%. And it's associated with DIC. So one of the causes of collapse of the acutely unwell obstetric patient. Thank you. That is very, very helpful. And uh, probably to end, I was hoping we could discuss a bit on prescribing in pregnancy. You did touch on this, mentioning different medications uh, according to the conditions we discussed earlier. But any other specific recommendations or considerations we need to have? Do you advise that we should always ask for specialist help or a specialist pharmacist and any useful resources uh, we should consider? I think this is um, a topic that people find um, quite nerve-wracking, especially if you're not used to prescribing for pregnant patients. I don't think you'll always need the help of a specialist pharmacist, but I think if you're not um, prescribing for pregnant people on a daily basis, you should be looking everything up before you prescribe it. Obviously, the, the BNF and your local hospital guidelines should have specific sections for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Another resource that I quite like is Bumps, which is a website called Best Use of Medicine in Pregnancy. And it's actually quite a good one sometimes to use to talk through the patient with because it's um, written from their point of view. Um, so it gives the pros and the cons and the risks and the benefits of different medications. Specific groups of medication-wise, like you said, antibiotics, some common things. So UTI in pregnancy, we'd avoid trimethoprim in the first trimester 
because it's a folate inhibitor and that's when the neural tube is developing. And we avoid nitrofurantoin in the third trimester and comoxiclav we shouldn't prescribe during pregnancy because of the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis in the fetus when they're born. And like we said before, no acts we don't use in pregnancy, but also warfarin is teratogenic, so it shouldn't be used in pregnancy as well. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time and for all these very useful insights on the assessment and management of medical problems in pregnancy. If you don't mind, just at the end, if you can summarize some of the key learning points that we should take on from today's discussion when we look after a pregnant patient in the AMU. So I think probably the most important things are actually some of the non-medical things, but um, to do with how we're managing these patients as a team. So we want to be and we expect to be called about any pregnant patient that's in the hospital. Um, so please call obstetrics. If you can plot the observations on a pregnancy-specific early warning scoring system, that would be really useful for yourself um, as well as the patient. Always look at medications before prescribing them. And remember that although we need to consider the effects on the fetus, it's the life of the mother that always takes priority. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you once again, Dr. Baker, for this great overview of acute medical problems in pregnancy. Our online maternal medicine symposium will be running on the 28th of April this year, and we're delighted to invite you to join us for a day of learning from experts in the field of maternal and fetal medicine and get an update in diabetes, cardiac disease, respiratory and infectious disease in pregnancy. It is going to be a day filled with great presentations and informative panel discussions. You can register for this event on events.rcpe.ac.uk.